So who in here has ever gotten in trouble because of pride? Everybody else is like, I'm not saying anything. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> I could go on on how that might be prideful, but. No, one of the most recurring sins that in the Bible that gets humanity in trouble is pride. That we just forget our place. We want more. We think we deserve more. We don't want to admit who we are or what we are. Whatever. Pride comes in many different forms, but at the end of the day, pride never ends well. And so there are really multiple options to look at Scripture at you know God's wrath being poured out on pride because... Let's just face it, we keep giving him opportunity as mankind. But today we're going to look at a story in First Chronicles 21 about King David. Again, a man after God's own heart. So it's not like this was somebody you know that we've never heard of or, or somebody who didn't have a relationship with God. This is someone whom God said, this is a man after my own heart. That, that this was David, one of the, one of the examples strip, Scripture gives us of faith, you know, living faith in a person. And yet, pride becomes an issue for him in which God's wrath has to be poured out. And there's quite the price to be paid for it. And so... We're going to start in First Chronicles 21. We'll end up looking at the entire chapter today. But we're just going to start out looking at verses 1 through 6 at kind of the setting. And it says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commander of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord, the king, all of them, my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. So what's going on here? David, at this point, has been blessed. I mean, we, we get a number now of 1,100,000, and that's not even the entire nation. And we're just talking about armed soldiers, men who can fight, who can draw the sword. That's a big army. And especially in that day and time, this is a nation whom God has abundantly blessed. And so what started to happen? David became proud. He's the king whom God has elevated and blessed. And he's sitting on a throne in which he looks at his kingdom and he's like, we're awesome. Look at this. We have abundance. We have security. We have blessing. This is amazing. And he starts thinking more and more about how great this really is. 
And instead of giving thanks to God, what does he do? I want to know just how awesome I really am. And he sends his, his commander, his first, you know, his first in charge under him, Joab, who really, if you know your Old Testament, is a very much an unsung hero in Scripture. Joab was always there next to David's side, most of the time telling him, hey, what you're doing stupid. Stop. Over and over again, Joab's like, that's a bad call, David. Don't do that. But it says this time that the king's word prevailed. He didn't listen, and so he says, I want to know just how big my army is. Now, if you're a king, what purpose, other than prideful recognition or, or thinking this, why would you be numbering your troops? What are you thinking about? Invasion? Hey, I, how big is my army? What could, what could we accomplish with this large of an army? Maybe it's time to, to expand our borders. Can you see where this could start going somewhere very bad, very quickly? God has given them peace. God has given them abundance. God has given them a provision and protection and blessing. And instead of being grateful for it, pride has left David in a place where he says, I want more. I want more of it. So he starts numbering it. And you can see where you can, this starts to just go somewhere bad. And it, it bears out as true as always as Proverbs sixteen eighteen that says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, King Solomon would have known something about this, the son of David. Pride goes before destruction. David was becoming prideful in, in, in what he had, and he was thinking bigger. And many times, pride does that. Pride always overestimates its own ability, right? Pride always overestimates its own righteousness. Pride always overestimates itself. And so as David is, is getting this, you know, kind of delusions of grandeur when he's already the most powerful king in the known world at that time, how much more do you need? You see, pride will never be satisfied. Pride will never be satisfied. And so there's a reason that God just over and over in Scripture denounces this type of pride. In Proverbs 16, 16 through 19, it says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now if we think about what David is probably planning on doing here, what is it? He's got haughty eyes. He's not lying yet, but what? He, he may be preparing to shed innocent blood. I'm going to use my army and we're going to go conquer the world. It says, a heart that devises wicked plans. I mean, David is going right down this path into the things that God considers to be evil. And it is own pride that is doing it. Now, it's one thing when a, an individual becomes prideful. Most of the time, they kind of bear the brunt of it. But what happens when it's the king over the greatest army in the world at the time who becomes prideful? Who's going to pay the price for that? Probably not David, right? We, we see that today. Rulers can start wars, but it's not the rulers that fight them. Who fights it? Other people. 
Other armies have to get involved. People get involved in this. And, and so David, at this point, is making plans in his heart that are going to hurt a lot of people. You see, because pride is all about me, myself, and I. All the time. You know, it's ironic that the word pride is the word I right in the center. Right in the center of everything is the letter I. C.S. Lewis called pride the essential vice, the utmost evil, saying it is the complete anti-God state of mind. And when pride takes hold, we can rest assured that trouble is going to follow. And so as David starts to make these plans, is this David's kingdom? No, it's God's kingdom. He established the nation of Israel. It's his people. It's his kingdom. It's his promises. It's his people that fight the wars. And so God has to act here to stop what probably would have turned into a much larger loss of life than what's going to happen. And when we start to understand God's wrath properly, we start to understand one essential truth about it, and and that is that God's wrath targets the problem. God doesn't just, you know, as we've talked about, God doesn't just lose his temper and, and suddenly, you know, people are just dying everywhere because he can't control himself. When God executes wrath, it's always completely on target. And in this case, what was the target? It was David's pride. And so God's wrath targets the problem. Listen in 1 Chronicles 21, 7 through 8. It says, but God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, it's like, whoa, I messed up, God. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Let's, in this... Now, we don't know what exactly happened here when it says he struck Israel, but it was enough that it got David's attention. And he's like, whoa, okay, bad thing. Back it up. Bad, bad problem. Except David just realizes he made a mistake, but he hasn't really yet learned his lesson. Now, how many in here know exactly what I'm talking about there? You know you messed up. And you want to back out of that mistake as quickly as possible But you didn't really learn the heart lesson and change your thinking along the way. And if God just lets him off the hook here with a, I'm sorry, what's going to happen? He's just going to do it again. You know, he'll kind of lay low for a while. He'll he'll take that that pride and he'll he'll push it down and cover it up for a while, but it's going to come back. And so God has to teach him a lesson in this. And sometimes we have to feel the pain of what we've done before God will allow us to move on. And this is one of the harder parts of God's wrath because there are times that we just want to, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he's like, oh, I know you are, but you're really more sorry you got caught. I want to make sure that you are sorry. I want to make sure that you are repentant at a heart level for what happened and that you change your thinking and your feeling, and that you change who you are at the core, not just avoid bad consequences. And we have this in Scripture repeatedly. 
In Psalm 119, 65 through 67, it says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Now listen to this. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You know, that's a gentle way of saying poetically in Psalms that before you thumped me in the head, I didn't know what I was doing. But now I think twice. Now I get it. You caused enough pain. He used the word afflicted. And there was a real suffering that went on there. There was pain that he had to process, he had to deal with, and he had to get through. And he's like, now I get it. Before that, I kind of went my own way. I did my own thing. But now, after this experience, now I don't do that anymore. You got my attention. And then again in Psalm 119, verse 71, it says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now, there's wisdom there, isn't there? How many of us can look back on our lives and say, it was good that I was afflicted because that's when I learned? You see, pride won't let us say those words. Pride will hold on and say, no, I, okay, I may have made a mistake, but I wasn't wrong. When I wait, how does that work? You made a mistake, but you weren't wrong. But pride will try to carry that out and say, you know, there, there are reasons here. It's, it's not really my fault. And, yeah, I made a mistake. But, you know, God, can't we just move on from that? That was yesterday. Pride will hold on to the bitter end. And so sometimes God has to make it hurt enough that we're willing to let go of our pride. That it becomes more painful to hold on than to let go. Now, the only question there is, look, all of humanity does this, okay? All of humanity does this. We all do it to a degree. It just matters is how long. We, we kind of have lessons in human, human stubbornness in this. And, you know, in the Old Testament, there was an entire generation of people that died in the wilderness because they just held on. They, I'm just, we're just going to keep on, and we are not going to let go. We're just going to keep going, and... They kept turning on God, and God kept being faithful, but they never made it to the promised land. And so here, David, a man after God's own heart, still quickly says, oh, man, that was a bad one. Okay, God, I'm sorry, except, listen in verse 9. It says, and the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Now, this is in response to David saying, God, remove my iniquity. So God tells him, here's how this is going to work to remove your iniquity. So Gad came to David and said to him, thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide... What answer, I shall return to him who sent me. This is the spiritual equivalent of go pick your switch off the tree. And you better bring back a good one. But think of it a little bit more. In this process, God's wrath turned against the object of David's pride. What was the object? 
the nation that he looked at and said, look at what I have accomplished. Look at what I have. And God says, buddy, you haven't accomplished anything. I gave this to you. I sustain this for you. I provide for this for you. And I protect this for you. And so think about the options that God has given him. He had to choose the punishment, and each one is specifically targeting his pride in what he has. His kingdom was going to suffer in ways that he couldn't control, and he had to choose what it was. Three years of famine, what is he hitting? The nation's prosperity. Oh, life's been easy. We've been, crops have worked. We've gotten all, and God says, okay, I can take that away from you. And we'll do it for three years, and it's going to hurt. And David, he does not like that con- that idea one bit. Wait, three years of no rain? And think about this. In biblical times, it's not like you could irrigate in the same way. You had three years of famine. You're talking about the crops didn't grow, and now we get through a winter without food. People die of starvation in these times. People die just simply because there isn't food. And so he says, you can do this for three years, or you can get three months of devastation by your enemies. Now, David had been a successful warrior before. You think he didn't have some pride in him of my army, and I lead these men, and I, we are powerful, and nobody can touch us. Now, why could nobody touch him? Because God had been protecting them. And so God said, for three months, I will take away your security that I have provided. And David starts thinking about that going, um, you know, I've, I've fought a lot of battles. And there are a lot of nations around us that probably don't like me. And if word gets out that it's open season, this is going to be bad. See, the reality starts to hit home for him of like, wait a minute. I, I've done a lot of damage to the Philistines. They probably would like an opportunity to avenge, you know, Goliath and all the other things that have happened. And so he says, or three days of pestilence by the sword of the angel of the Lord. The actual blessed, favored status removed for just three days. Just three days. Think of how terrifying that would be, that all of a sudden you're like, God is against us for three days. Just three days. And David realizes he has zero control over the status of the nation. And he knows this is about to hurt. You see, pridefully, he wanted to take a census of the people so he could celebrate what he had accomplished. And now he gets to face up to what he had accomplished. And God's wrath zeroed in and targeted directly the point of David's pride. Now, why is this such an issue? Because oftentimes the most prideful people are those who have been blessed the most. There's a weird paradox that should not exist in this within God's people, and yet it does, is that those whom God has just blessed and everything has worked and it goes, they're the ones that start walking around with their chest puffed out thinking that they've done something. And God says, okay, well, just like David, I'm going to have to bring you down a little bit. 
And God's wrath will absolutely target the very thing that it needs to fix. And so David responds. It says, then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. This is, again, one of those opportunities for the Bible to understate the situation. In modern terms, he says, I'm freaking out. I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. Think about that. David says, I'd rather be punished by God than people. See, there, there is some pride there. He's like, don't, I, don't humiliate me and f- don't let them humiliate me, God. I'll just, you do what you got to do. And he says, for his mercy is very great. Verse 14, so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. Now, is that unfair? 70,000 men who had absolutely nothing to do with their their king's pride are the ones that are now suffering for this. Is that fair? Oh, it's absolutely unfair. But what is this pointing us towards? That there would be a point where it would be unfair that one who had not committed the sin would die for the one who committed the sin? See, already God is pointing us towards Jesus. He's pointing us towards those who are innocent will die for the guilty. And of course, at the cross, that is exactly what happened. Jesus Christ died the innocent for the guilty. And so 70,000 men of Israel fell, verse 15, and God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And so this is a visible thing. The angels come, people are dying, he starts to go set his targets on Jerusalem. And God says, no, put your sword away. But the angel just stays there and he's got his sword. And this is, this is again, as a terrifying image. This is something that everybody today would absolutely lose their mind in fear in this moment because this is an amazing sight. And so David sees this and we find out that really when we're going to get to the actual cure for pride, you see, God can punish us and make us regret pride, but if we're really going to overcome selfish pride in our own hearts, you know what it takes? Sacrificial worship. We have to humble ourselves before God and acknowledge him as God and and, and offer him worship that cost us something. And in many ways, genuine worship always costs us our pride. You cannot sacrificially worship God and worship God in, in, in spirit and in truth in an acceptable way without swallowing your own pride. Because I guarantee at some point, every person in worshiping God, God moves them to a point of, hey, raise your hand and worship. It's like, well, just somebody might see me. Well, who cares if somebody sees you? Is this about them or is this about God? No, I'm not saying we make a spectacle and God's worship is always going to bring glory to him and not focus on the person, but... To give genuine worship to God, whether it is lifting your hands, falling to your knees, crying, or even celebrating, there is going to come a moment 
They're just going to get you outside of your comfort zone. And pride will be the first thing to stop it. Oh, I can't do that, God. No, 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 no. Why not? Well, it's embarrassing. You see, we read later. We, we read about David celebrating when they brought the ark in. Not later, actually, this is before. When, when David brought the ark in, as we talked about last week, he danced and was leaping and was shouting and was praising so much, it embarrassed his wife. And she's like, you need to never do that again. He goes, oh, no, I'll be even more undignified for my God. You see, David was a man after God's own heart, and he understood it. And he's like, oh, no, I will praise God, and I don't care who sees it. I will give God the praise that he is due. I will worship him publicly. True worship costs us our pride every single time. And that's what David does. In 1 Chronicles 21, 16 and 17, it says, And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, did what? Fell upon their faces. Worship. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. Very different prayer than what he said earlier. Oh God, take my iniquity away. That was bad. I shouldn't have done it. I got it. What's he saying now? He's taking full response. Hey, I did this. They're innocent. I'm guilty. If you got to punish somebody, I'm the one who deserves it, not them. There's no pride in this. He has been humbled. He fell down and he worshiped. And his pride is now gone. And when pride is gone, worship begins. We can serve God. We can see clearly what God wants us to do. We, we get out of our own way when we humble ourselves before God. So in verse 18, a little longer section now, but this is so powerful in this story. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. Now, again, understatement. Teenagers, you ever out with dad working and suddenly an angel fills the sky with a drawn sword and you're like, I'm out. See you later. And Ornan is standing there like, interesting. Here comes David. (laughs) There's an angel killing everybody. I think I'm in the middle of something. Verse 21, as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, take it and let my Lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. He's like, dude, take all of it. I don't just, that's got to stop. Okay, that's enough. You can have all of it. No, but verse 24, but King David said to Ornan, no, 
but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. See, David has learned his lesson. God's wrath has changed David's heart. He was numbering the troops before getting ready to go conquer the world, thinking they all belong to me, this is all mine, and now he won't take a measly oxen without paying for it. He has gone from one extreme to the other now of like, I won't do anything (laughs) that is out of line here. I will pay full price for your land, for the wood, for the oxen, for the wheat. I will buy all of it. Verse 25, so David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Worship. Once again, as we saw before, worship happens. And the the same spirit that was just destroying is now honoring the worship that is taking place and is saving. See, God's wrath is not this uncontrolled loss of temper that that just wipes people out just at will. I know 70,000 men died in this plague, but how many would have died in a foolhardy attempt to go conquer the world with his massive army had David continued down this prideful path? He could have destroyed the entire kingdom. And when we understand God's wrath, we start to see even God's wrath saves people when it is poured out. And so, fire came forward. Verse 27, then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. Verse 28, at that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. You see, the amazing thing that happens here is this becomes the site where the future temple will be built. The site where the sacrifice was made, where the lesson was learned, becomes a spiritual marker of which everything after that would happen all the way up until the time of Jesus when that site is no more and the cross becomes the center of everything. See, even in wrath, redemption is God's goal. Even in wrath, redemption is God's goal. Don't ever forget that. God does not want to just punish people because he can. God does not decide to just be mean to people at will just because he can. You know who does that? We do that. Humanity does that. We get a little bit of power and we like to flex that muscle. And that's exactly what David was doing here. And God stopped it before it could turn into anything. But God's wrath is always given with the goal of redeeming 
or instructing. And even though, you know, you had people before like Uzzah and others who died because of God's wrath, it still served the redemptive purpose of instructing everyone else. God's wrath is always looking to redeem. And so what we have to learn out of this is one, don't take credit for what God has accomplished in your life for yourself. You give that back to God every time. And don't be shy about it. Tell people, God has done this. Brag about it, but make sure you're bragging about God. Not owning it for yourself of what I did and what I've accomplished. No, this is what God has done. Because pride wants to take credit for that which it did not accomplish. Pride is afraid of being exposed as weak and ineffective. Where faith says, of course I'm weak and ineffective, but my God is awesome. And he did it. And I can live with freedom and joy within that and say, God is good and I'm not. And it's okay because his grace has me covered. And we get to live in that freedom. And so we offer worship to God who is greater than us regularly. That's what we're here for. That's what we do as the people of God as we come together and we worship him and thank him and we go back to the cross over and over and over saying, God, I didn't deserve this, but you gave it to me and I want to live my life in recognition and in gratitude of what you've done for me. And we run everything through that filter so that we ourselves don't have to live through something like what David did. You see, the scripture tells us that everything that is given in the Old Testament, everything that was given was given as an example to instruct us in righteousness. Will you learn the lessons of David here? Or will we be like David and have to learn the hard way and press forward and just keep going until God finally says, okay, I'm going to have to make it hurt. Because either way, if you belong to God, if you are born again, he's not going to allow us to just continue in our own pride unabated. God will always intervene. It's just how bad does it have to hurt for us to learn the lesson? I pray for all of us that it doesn't have to hurt very much, that we're quick to learn, quick to listen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the lessons, for the grace, God, that you are holy and that all that you do, you do out of love, you do out of perfection. God, that redemption is your goal, that you don't want to lose any of us, God, but you do it to glorify yourself and redeem us at the same time. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to understand. God, we give ourselves to you. And Lord, I pray that we trust you in all things. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray together. Amen.